The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Our guest on today's show is so accomplished, we could literally have an entire show with me just reading what he's done in his life. His ability to combine academic pursuit with public service while being one of the most approachable scientists in our country has placed our guest in the unique position of being the advocate for science in our community and the society in general. He's an award-winning writer of more than 20 books, including Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, and his brand new book, Accessory to War. His media work includes programs like Cosmos, the Space-Time Odyssey, NOVA, Science Now, and many others have made him accessible to millions of people so they can understand and appreciate from him the majesty and humbling nature of the truly infinite. Neil deGrasse Tyson, thank you for joining me on What's Work in Washington today. You're putting a lot on my shoulders there. <laughs> All I'm doing is reciting what you've done, so there's no to blame yourself. You're trying to get me to explain the infinite. I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> I've seen your programming. Let me put it to you this way. If it wasn't for you, I, I might think the world was flat. Well, <laughs> but let, let's begin with this, since this really, you're joining us today on a show that's about people who get things done in, in Washington, D.C., you know, the entrepreneurs, uh, business owners, people in technology. Uh, folks are just not weighed down by bureaucracy or ideology, partisanship. Uh, I thought you'd be a great guest because I suspect you relate to all of those things based on what I've seen you do in your career. I'd like to, I'd like to think that I do. Th th thanks for noticing that, yeah. Let me ask you, when you think of D.C., of the nation's capital, what do you tend to think about? Uh, ambitious 20 and 30-somethings trying to make a difference in the world. And what that means is that they bring a lot of energy to the region. I'm not talking about those who have become career politicians or career civil servants. I'm talking about the flow of people in and out of every election cycle that bring a certain, uh, a certain hope and ambition to their duties. And so I see that and I, and I celebrate that fact anytime I go to Washington. I have been told, and in my own life, I work with entrepreneurs and as a venture investor in other ways, I have been told that one of the biggest differences between this region and other parts of the country is people come here because they want to change the world. Yeah, exactly. Exa and I, I, it, that energy is palpable. And not only that, if you walk the halls of Congress, the, the corridors and, the, and the, especially the, the more public spaces, there are these quotes that appear from people who we've all know, you know, founding fathers and, and, and people who have thought more deeply about democracy than any of us have. And you read these quotes and say, yeah, 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 that's what, the, oh yeah! <laughs> and you get all, you get like totally pumped that you want to do something right. And what makes the politics interesting is that not everyone agrees on what is right. And so th that is the birth of politics. I, as a scientist, I have the, the, the privilege of, of doing things in this world as a scientist with the methods and tools of science developed over the centuries whose entire goal is to find out what is objectively true. And what is objectively true then transcends your 
politics or your religion or your culture or your 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 society it is it is something that should be a baseline for you to then have your political arguments but that's not what you should be politically arguing about that's <laughs> and so, so this is a this is a difference between the 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 enterprise of science and the enterprise of politics i think that's really quite apt you know I was struck recently, I was talking with a philosopher that I know well, and he said, you know, the reality is that there is an objective truth, and we are losing track of that. And that does seem to be the case right now in a lot of uh, places where I, I run into people and have conversations. Yeah, objective truths are established by experiment and observation that is then repeated. So, for example, I can have some scientific result that is wow that's an interesting one and it says something that no one thought before well no don't base your life on it yet let's see if someone else gets this same result or something very similar to my result and if they don't and no one can duplicate my results then my result becomes some anomalous thing that's very likely to just simply be wrong and maybe i um, i had bias in my design or interpretation of my data so th this is what makes science interesting. It has built-in built in tools to ferret out uh, false information, either done maliciously or inadvertently or, or, um, uh, or, or if you're trying to fund something because you want a particular result and then you get that result, by the way, it doesn't mean the result is wrong. It means, hmm, you wanted that result, didn't you? So I'm going to raise my skeptical meter as I review your work, and I'm going to try to design an experiment to see if you're right or not. And if I now have no skin in the game, and I get the same result you do, and someone else does, and someone else does, then you say, hey, we've got a new emergent truth here, no matter who funded it. Because nature cannot be fooled, even if we can fool one another once or twice. Nature is the ultimate judge, jury, and execution. The book is called Accessory to War, The Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military. We're going to talk national security, something many of us in DC need to focus on when we return. We'll be right back with Neil deGrasse Tyson after a short break. Thank you to our sponsor, TEDCO. TEDCO invests in early stage tech and life science companies. It provides resources and connections that companies need to thrive in Maryland. Tedco's mission is to discover, invest in, and help build great companies. Learn more at www.tedco.md. And a thank you to our sponsor, JLL. JLL is a leading commercial real estate service company within the Washington, D.C. metro area, serving the technology, government contracting, and professional services industries. JLL's strategy-led approach and expert implementation results in cost-effective and flexible real estate solutions that help their clients succeed and grow. What's Working in Washington is brought to you by Speakerbox, a company that meets the unique demands of the technology sector, crystallizing complex ideas, targeting highly intelligent buyers, and moving at the speed of tech. In business since 1997, they've given voice to the industry's top thinkers and performers, Influence hundreds of successful product launches, acquisitions, evaluations, and IPOs. Check them out at speakerboxpr.com. It seems to me that in some ways what's happened now is we've lost 
the ability to appreciate that we just stand on the shoulders of those that come before us, that knowledge is a collective activity that cuts across time and space and generations. Yeah, and it's, uh, well, I think maybe the next generation knows this. Uh, I hope I'm not delusional in thinking that. Because they, they what is it, the, the, the millennials, the ones that have only known a world with a smartphone and where that level of computing technology has been at their fingertips. I don't think any of them takes that for granted, that they know where grandma's house is by holding this device that weighs a few ounces in their arm that's talking to GPS satellites orbiting the Earth. This, I mean, they might take it for granted briefly, but if, if they step back, I think they have come to know, understand, and recognize the value of science and technology in creating the lives that they lead. And so, and, that, and that's a good thing, because now they don't happen to be old enough yet to be running the world, but I actually, I can't wait for them to do just that. I know grown-ups are not supposed to say that about the next generation. <laughs> They're supposed to be worried for the future of the world, but I, I can't wait. And I think they were not the ones duped, so heavily duped by fake news as the older generations were. You know, I agree with that. I, I teach one of the local business schools here at University of Maryland, and I teach a lot of millennials and Gen Xs and Ys, and you're exactly right. I think there's a much higher uh, appreciation of technology and also a greater awareness that just because you read on the internet, it doesn't make it true, <laughs> which gives me hope. Uh -huh. Also, also that generation respects those who create that technology. Whereas when I grew up, you know, if you were sort of the geeky person with the computer, you're the one who got the wedgie, or you're the one who got slammed into the lockers by the football quarterback. I'm stereotyping here, of course, but you know, you know the, the scenarios that I'm describing. <clears throat> that, uh, I, and no, I haven't hung out in high schools lately, but the, the people who, who are the tech folks, those are the future entrepreneurs and the future billionaires. You really want to treat those people nicely. <laughs> those, those, yeah, those are the ones you you're gonna you're gonna. Uh, plus, plus they could have been the ones that help you with your math homework. Listen, uh, without revealing too much, I was in the bottom of a lot of those wedgie piles in high school. Oh, oh. Yeah, but it's turned out okay. Here we are. Everything in my life was to this moment. <laughs> uh, Neil, if it's okay, I want to. Oh, by the way, I, I I you know every now and then on my Twitter stream, I um, I, I try to say something funny or entertaining it doesn't always hit you know that's the risk of humor but one of them I said I wonder if the idea for the thong came from the first nerd who got a wedgie well we, we had bathing suits that's... named after atomic bomb <laughs> to go from bikini to thong I... that's not such a stretch is it it's not a stretch it's just another example of how science drives society in, in ways that people can't even imagine let me turn to this because I will tell you I get I'm lucky, and I'm, I'm sure you do too, since you also post, uh, and I've hosted shows. I get a lot of books in, in the mail uh, during the course of the week, and I got your book, Accessory to War, a couple weeks ago, and it just it just seemed particularly apt to me with all the discussion about the Space Force, and just, you know, here in D.C., where we're at the center of all this, what do you think about uh, the role that astrophysicists play in national security? It, it seems your book really speaks to the complexity, uh, and how do you balance your personal values against working in national security applications. I'm sure a lot of listeners deal with this question every day. Yeah, that's a, a great question. And let me uh, add something that you left out of the title of that book. So the title of the book is Accessory to War. But more importantly, uh, it, more important than that is the subtitle. 
So it's accessory to war, the unspoken alliance between astrophysics and the military. And that really says it all. No, it's not secret, it's just unspoken. And not in any diabolical way, it's just unspoken. My community of astrophysicists are overwhelmingly liberal anti-war. Overwhelmingly, okay? 90%. Some of that you get for free just by being an academic. Academics are overwhelmingly liberal uh, in their voting habits and in their opinions. Uh, but, but So let's just start there. So now, given that fact, now you look at the history of what we do and what the military does. Oh, we're interested in multispectral imaging of stuff in the sky. Oh my gosh, so is the military. They're looking for incoming missiles in infrared. They care about, they want to see, they, they want to see through things with x-ray de de detectors. They want, they, there's strong overlap in what we do and care about and what the military does and care, cares about. By the way, some of these in science have been obvious. You know, if it's some rogue nation, they'll need a biologist if they want to weaponize anthrax or, or you needed chemists when they had the, the mustard gas in the First World War or napalm or Agent Orange. Chemists came up with that. The, the nuclear bombs themselves were physicists. The role of those three scientific professions in the waging of war is known and obvious to people. But for astrophysicists, we're like the most, we're the most um, non-intrusive science there is. We sit there at the telescope and wait for light to come to us. We don't poke, poke it, heat it, freeze it, split it, cut it. We don't do it. There's no petri dish that we manipulate. No, we sit here passively and interpret the observations that we obtain with our telescopes and other detectors and, and other uh, instruments of our trade. And so you're not thinking that we are part and parcel to military conquest. It's just not your first thought. It's not our first thought either. We're just doing our thing. The military's doing their thing. Oh my gosh, there's overlap. Captain Cook, when he went to the South Pacific, we've all heard of his voyages, fewer people know why he went. Uh, he, he went to observe a transit of Venus across Earth's surface, uh, across the surface of the Sun. And so uh, at Venus and Earth in our orbit around the Sun, occasionally, once every couple of hundred years, we line up so that Venus exactly crosses the Sun. And you see this black dot move across. And it's kind of cool to watch. And it doesn't last very long. It only happens every couple of hundred years. And so it turns out if you make accurate measurements of that, you can determine the precise scale of the solar system, how far away the planets are from one another. And the Brits have always been big investors in science, so this was not a surprise that they would want to do this. So they send Captain Cook off, and they said, okay, here's your, that's your mission. Oh, by the way, by the way, flip over your marching orders and look what it said. Oh, oh my gosh. Here is a new set of navigational tools that we've just developed. Map every coastline you come to and bring back that information. Every coastline you discover, every piece of land that you greet. After he did that, ten year, within 10 years, Great Britain took control over the north coast of Australia 
and New Zealand and other islands off of in Oceania. And so this was the, the two-sided coin to dominance, to hegemony, to empire building. And you need the astronomer. Back then, it was astronomers, you wouldn't have called them astrophysicists yet. The astronomers knew the sky. And it's the sky that enabled navigation. And it's navigation that enables you to know where you are and where you're going. And if you're going to send troops the next wave, they're going to use the maps provided by the navigational tools that the previous um, ships had, had invoked. And by the way, what is GPS? It's navigation tools, but upgraded to modern times. Uh, and GPS is an Air Force um, project that has basically been gifted uh, to the rest of us. So here is a system that lets you know where you are on Earth that enabled, in the Gulf War especially, and for conflicts that followed it, the integration of land, sea, and air invasions, where everybody knows where everybody is at all times. That was space assets invoked in the Gulf War. And, and, and so this is real. It's real, and it's happening, and and we, we my community, are, are we, we are accessories to this. Oh, sorry, sorry. You asked, what is this sort of, uh, um, either emotionally or ethically? Um, Before we go there, I just want to remind everybody we're here on What's Working Washington with Neil deGrasse Tyson. You know, accessory, that's a, that's a pretty heavy word. I, I, you know, when I think about this, this has always been the way. I, you think about, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci, when he wasn't uh, creating beautiful sculpture, was helping the Medicis create uh, battlements and protecting uh, Florence. This is... This, this relationship between the most talented and, and intelligent people in a society and, and the military, it, it doesn't seem to be unique to our country. Oh, no, of course not. Oh, no, no, no. And we think of it in modern times because we are, we are highly, well, we once were highly space capable. <laughs> we don't have any way to get in space now. But we, we, we're associated with the exploration of space. And so, so, but, oh, no, this goes way back when Galileo perfected the telescope. Uh, you know, one of the first things he did was invite the Doge of Venice to the clock tower in the, in the big plaza in Venice and says, take a look out into the lagoon. Notice, you can identify whether the flag flown on a ship is friend or foe ten times farther away than you can with the unaided eye. And then the, the Doge did buy his telescope from him, and then this makes him financially stable, and then he goes and looks up at the universe and discovers hills and mountains and valleys and craters on the moon and sunspots and and uh, stars that that fill the Milky Way. I mean, so these are methods and tools that have shared use. The difference with with Leonardo is that he explicitly, as in the engineering side of him, he explicitly created inventive war machines. That's not what I'm doing as an astrophysicist. We're, the physicist makes the bomb. They're making a war machine. The astrophysicist does not make the war machine. No. That's the difference here. In Los Alamos, one of the dozen, ten or so national labs, uh, you've heard of them. There's Brookhaven and uh, Berkeley Labs and Fermi Labs. And Los Alamos is one of the national labs under the budget of the Department of Energy. They're tasked with monitoring and safeguarding and creating and maintaining the nuclear pile, stockpiles of the nation. 
And this would feed uh, nuclear power plants as well as weaponry. Okay. Do you realize that after we, after we outgrew the A-bomb, all right, that's just a fission bomb with uranium and plutonium, well, there's a bigger bomb waiting for us. Oh, my gosh, we can fuse hydrogen to get helium and get way more energy than those measly A-bombs that leveled Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oh, my gosh. Well, now we have bombs that are a thousand times more powerful. This is thermonuclear fusion, the conversion of hydrogen into helium. Oh, by the way, that's exactly what happens in the center of all stars, nearly all stars in the universe. As an astrophysicist, I care about what's going on in the centers of stars. Oh, the Los Alamos has the fastest computers in the world. They'll hire me to study my astrophysics. Oh, by the way, on the other side of the wall of that same computer and that same code are people calculating bomb yields from thermonuclear fusion. We both care about the same stuff. And so this shared intellectual... Um, enlightenment at the coffee lounge when we compare notes on what it is we do and care about. If you, if, you, if you don't want to build bombs, you can choose to not go to Los Alamos. You can choose to do that. But if you come up with something really innovative about how stars work, the military's going to want to read that. And they're going to wonder how they can weaponize it. You can't stop that. This is how that works. I'm screaming at you here. Sorry, you got. This me is why I, I love being ex exposed to you. Is that you take these things and bring them down into a way for people to understand and, and feel your passion, which leads me to ask you, Neil. I think there's so many different directions a life like yours could have taken. You became a scientist. How did you become the voice for for science and and these issues in our society? Was this a role you looked for, or did it, how did it happen? To you? Oh no, I, I no, I didn't look for it. I, I don't. I still don't want it. <laughs> Too bad, pal. <laughs> I'm I'm so ready to just go back to the lab and close the door, and 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 so so I'm on a landscape that was partly, if not mostly, cleared by Carl Sagan before me, at a time when scientists never did anything such as this. You might agree to be interviewed in a documentary, but you would never appear on a comedic talk show. Carl Sagan was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson multiple times, for example. And this was viewed as, well, what are you doing by his colleagues? He was, that was not embraced activity by the academy. And, but then people realized, oh my gosh, the members of Congress now know what it is I'm trying to research because they saw Cosmos in 1980 by Carl Sagan. And they say, oh, is that what you're doing? I like what you're doing then. Let's raise the budget for NASA or the National Science Foundation. And all the tidewaters rose for all the sciences. Especially since Cosmos in its day, and still is, uh, is not restricted to the universe, the astrophysics. There's chemistry, there's biology, there's geology, there's ecology, there's all manner of science explored and because the universe doesn't silo the scientific disciplines. It's all happening at the same time in the same place, this place we call the universe. So, so, uh, so I'm on that landscape, and m mainly because I live in New York City, and what happened was I would get interviewed about something, and I, I worked to give a good soundbite, right? The, the media likes good soundbites, so I started giving them good soundbites, and then they came back for more. 
that other people saw it, and they wanted a piece of that, and they wanted, and it was like, wow, okay, uh, I, I'll do that. So my my visibility in the public is not so much because that's what I dream of doing each morning. It's more because it's a duty. It is. I would be irresponsible if I did not. And so I come when I'm called rather than wake up and say, how can I bring the universe to the public today? No, it's like, how can I stay home today? And But no, then I get phone calls and there's... And plus, there's always something happening in the universe. There's an eclipse. There's a, you know, the, the moon. The, the, there's a, a black hole. There's a new particle. There's an exoplanet. There's a space launch. There's Elon Musk. There's always something happening. And so, and I'm here in New York City, and I'm an easy date for all the newscasters. You know, I'll tell you what, I, I, I got to get your beat. <laughs> oh, <what? laughs> well, you know, if you ever get tired, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll take you out and give you a cup of coffee. You're, you're so valuable to our society. And, and you're going to be here uh, at Warner Theater uh, sometime this month. And I, I know people want to Yeah, thanks for, for remembering. I forgot the date, but at the Warner Theater, that's it's right. The 13th of September. And you're good. You know, I got to tell you again, it just shows me how. Wait, wait, is it the Warner Theater? Or... No, no. Yeah. Well, the, that's, that's what I've been told. Yeah, you're selling out bigger okay. places. It's only a matter of time before you're doing the garden. <laughs> you know, just remember me then and, and get me on the list. <laughs> I'm so not doing the garden. No, that's too many people. You say that now, but maybe we can turn science into an e-sport and who knows. But It is, re though it really is, uh, I, I will never grow accustomed to the fact that I'm standing there in front of these theaters. They hold, you know, 2,000, 3,000 people. It's like 3,000 people on a Thursday night, you know, date night, and they're coming out to hear an astrophysics lecture. That's, it's like, oh my gosh, is this real? Is this actually happening? And I'm flattered and honored, and it's a huge responsibility to deliver on the expectations of so many people coming, and they're buying tickets, and they're bringing their loved ones, their friends, their families, and... Oh, by the way, when I give public talks like that, I never give book talk. Hardly ever give book talks. So these are not book talks that I'm giving. They're talks about uh, fun topics in the universe that um, that are selected by the local host. So, um, and there's a whole range of them. One of my favorites that I give is is an astrophysicist goes to the movies. And I just show movie clips and then I tell you where they got it right or where they got it wrong. And it's just it's just fun because it's so deeply into pop culture. But now everyone can become somebody who monitors how good the science is by the, the creative artists who are trying to tap it. But anyhow, the point is, yes, it's in the, in the, in the Warner Theater in D.C. It's People been wonderful to have you on the air, and since you won't talk about the book when you're at the Warner Theater, I'm going to remind everybody to go out and buy Accessory to War. Neil deGrasse Tyson, I will tell you, I, I've seen you speak many times. Having the chance to talk with you today, it's, if anything, I'm more inspired than I was before. Thanks for taking the time and joining us today. Well, I, thank you for it. I'm glad I didn't let you down. <laughs> no, I think that it's fair to say that uh, you can stay on the payroll for another week. Okay, excellent. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on What's Working in Washington. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan. Online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two DC region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. Tweet us at, at What's Working DC and tell us what you think of the show. Don't forget to like us on iTunes. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.